Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And we're back here to talk about heavy existential things. Although we are going to next week continue our proposed series, right? Or we're going to begin it. We're going to begin it next week. Which is our follow-up to Faces of Jesus, the top 10 pop culture songs which feature Jesus the Christ. Yeah, and uh, we did a survey, and so we thank you for our listeners who participated, and you all, your votes counted, and uh, we may do, uh, we may do some of the runner-ups. Yeah, your votes count. It's not a caucus state, right? Actually, <laughs> <laughs> take your votes seriously. <laughs> That's right. We don't move you from one side of the room to the other. And the Nevada caucuses, like the process, was like all right. At the end of the tally, the vote tally, take a picture with your cell phone and text it. To Joe. Uh, <laughs> That's the party right. <laughs> Well, the other thing is you had all these poor uh, casino workers who make minimum wage, you know, and they're in a room and it's going on forever and some of them have to go uh, work. Uh, it's just, uh, yeah. Uh, if it, I lived in a caucus state, I'd feel so, ch- like, frustrated because, like, it's such a laborious thing just to vote. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there have been times, I, I remember talking to someone who was in Iowa during the, I mean, uh, during the Obama and it was really exciting. I mean, but uh, I'm with you. It, it seems it seems like a, a strange way to do things. So, Bill, tell us what our conversational topic for the day is. Well, we thought we'd talk about loss today. You know, periodically we talk about different things that are kind of the essence of life. We've talked about friendship, talked about, you know, memories, different different aspects of Sexting, we talked about. We did talk about sex, which thing. is part of the essence of modern life. Yeah, sex, sex teen. Yeah, the yeah the yeah, but um, yeah, you know, and, and it's it's something that I think marks so many of our of our lives. I mean, if you you know, you know, there are the obvious losses. The you know, when we lose someone we love because of death, but there are losses from work, relationships, and. Uh, even things transition. I mean, as as uh, I remember, as watching my kids get older, um, you know, when when my last one went to kindergarten, I, I remember that being a pretty sad day because I knew what 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 that meant, and so that that was a sense of loss. So there's this New England town, and you know, it's a very academic, sophisticated town, and there's a forum on when. Uh, life begins. And so the first talk was given by a Jesuit scholar and priest in the town, argued very passionately and persuasively that life begins at conception. The second person was another academically inclined mainline Protestant clergy person who argued very persuasively that life begins not at conception but at birth. 
Well, then there's the Episcopal priest who had a flask in his pocket and had a few and then a few more and stood up and says, I don't know what the hell either of you are talking about. Everyone in this room knows life begins when the kids leave home and the dog dies. <laughs> yeah, so there are some losses that are, are liberating, I yeah, guess. You know, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. It's a perspective. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, you and I have certainly walked through a variety of losses with each other. And, uh, you know, one of the things about the time of loss is that it is a it is a time when you're often a little more vulnerable. You're a little more open, perhaps, to let other people help you. Uh, at least I, I try to be that way. And, and that's not my natural state to be to be that open to get help from other people. Uh, it's a time where, you know, something a change has been forced on you, usually not by your own choosing. And I guess with, with every opportunity for change um, comes an opportunity for improvement as, as well as moving forward and trying new things. You think it's harder when it's not forced to fight? I mean, what if it's like ending a relationship or leaving a job or some sort of endeavor or relationship, that, you know, I mean, not that there's always easier loss. I mean, how do you quantify any of that? It's mysterious. Right. But, I mean, how you know, is it worse if you have to choose it? Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting question because, uh, because in those situations you have, you have your own, you know, you question your own judgment or uh, could I have done things differently? Should I have done things differently? Um, yeah, I, I, it, it's a different kind of hard, I think, because, you know, when you have a loss forced upon you, then you have the whole issue of, of being reminded what little control you have over the world and over yourself. And that that has its own kind of hard. But I do think in some if something's ending that you you know cared about and didn't really want to end uh, or, you know, you were you contributed to its ending, then I think there is a lot of room for for second guessing, for questioning, for for doubting down the road afterwards. Yeah, how much also the pain of loss is not just the loss of the lover or the friend or the job or you know whatever significant thing it was, but also what you were saying before that like I feel like we spend a good deal of our existence, especially as modern people. I mean, I'm sure this is a perennial thing, but like at least as modern people, attempting to imagine we're in some relative control of our lives yeah yeah and that we're autonomous people that can make decisions and 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 really especially as americans right you can be whoever you want to be you can you know dream the impossible dream and in those moments it what happens is there's a veil that's pulled back and we really see that we're not really in control of much of anything at right. all right <laughs> right yeah you know i i I think um, I think that's true, and uh, that's a hard reality to to deal with. Um, you know, I think sometimes too. I mean, certain kind of losses are failures. Uh, you know, watching Jeb Bush a couple of weeks ago announce that he was, you know, his campaign was ending. Uh, there was all kinds of layers of loss there. Now there may have been some relief as well, but um, there's someone who never lived up quite to the expectations. There's a, there's the could have been, should have been. And um, yeah, I think there, that there, that's a kind of loss that uh, a lost opportunity. I mean, I mean, I think Jeb Bush is okay. We don't need to send him uh, 
you know, any money in the mail. He's going to be fine. His life will still be huge (laughs) as one of the well-educated. Yeah. But, but you see, I, I think there's a loss when we think of our failures, when we didn't, when we didn't achieve the things that we thought we were going to achieve, uh, and coming to grips with that, I think that is a, uh, you know, I mean, that may be the essence of the midlife crisis. Um, and, um, I think the midlife crisis is in part, gosh, you know, things aren't going to quite work out the way I hope they did or they would. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm mortal. I'm going to not be here someday. Yeah. And I think probably right. What makes that hard or maybe the midlife, I don't know if the midlife crisis is worth thinking of it as again, a uniquely, modern capitalistic because because your capacity if you've got just a decent amount of resources to really do some drastic things whether it's you know buy a sports car right carry on a double life with a you know forbidden romantically as whatever it's just you like i don't know how much of the choices that we have as as consumers and the myth we have that we can be anything we want actually I wonder if that isn't just an outlet for the midlife crisis, but is what helps to cause it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, because I think, for instance, you know, I, I've always looked at, for instance, Elijah after Mount Carmel. I mean, it's not a midlife crisis, but it's, it is all ultimately a crisis of identity. This is Old Testament prophets for people that don't know their Bible that well, which if we're going by demographic studies— that's most of our listeners, right? Whether they're religious or not. Well, it's a great story. So it is uh, a good story. It's um, uh, Elijah is a ninth century BC prophet. Um, is that right, or is he eighth century? Ninth or eighth, ninth century? Right. Ninth. It's a century between friends. <laughs> and he's prophesying in the northern kingdom. There was a split between the north and the south, and uh, the northern king Ahab, who that name certainly shows up again. Uh, in uh, the history of literature, uh, marries a uh, Phoenician queen named Jezebel, also a name infamous, infamous for her for her uh, activities. Who didn't dodge a few Phoenician queens named Jezebel <laughs> in their romantic life in the uh, early years? Some of you didn't dodge her, and you know. Yep. So you're you're, you're you're living that pain. You paid the the Phoenician price. Mm-hmm. Uh, any rate. Uh, Elijah's persecuted. He, uh, there's a famine in the land as God's judgment, and then there's this amazing, you know, showdown with a, with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And long story short, uh, God wins, and the prophets of Baal lose. And in great religious fervor, the prophets of Baal are killed. Uh, you know, Elijah is vindicated. Uh, God is Yahweh is vindicated, and. Uh, you know, Jezebel basically says, you know, you know, the, the sun's not going to set before I kill you. And he, he flees and he quits. He just, he basically says he goes out in the wilderness, he wants to die. And the long, I, you know, trying to give you the background, but it's, it's fascinating. This, this prophet, his greatest day is followed by uh, a day of full of anger, regret, doubt. Um, and he challenges God and, and, uh, and his and his basically in many ways his career is over then. But it, it was he he'd come to the limit, you know. The day after his greatest uh, victory, um, he was done. And I I think sometimes 
you know, it's it's bad not to achieve our goals, but sometimes it's equally um, devastating once you have won, once you've made it to whatever your goal was, and then to find out that that's all all there is. Yeah, I think so. I think the hard balancing act of at least flourishing human existence to me seems to be how do you hold things loosely and yet still love them and attach? I mean, part of I think the way we're designed is to attach to things, to attach meaning to things, to know and be known, to love and be loved. But yet also, I think you can quickly by over-attaching to things, by sort of giving them a kind of spiritual or existential uh, meaning and purchase that maybe only your creator is supposed to have, the source of being is supposed to have, you kind of, you lose not only connection to the source, the transcendent kind of source of being, but you also lose the relative good that the lover or the job or the child or the art form can be. Right. Um, I think Kierkegaard said in, in his book, Works of Love, that nothing we can lose could be an ultimate source of happiness. Yeah. I think that's... And we all live in the shadow of the valley, right? I mean, we all live knowing that we will die and that, every, that either we will die and everybody at the moment that loves us and is attached to us and connected and seeks meaning will lose us or everyone we look at, know, care for, we will lose. Yeah. And, and most deaths are not pretty. Yeah. So, you know, I think Han Solo's was as close as it gets to beautiful in the last Star Wars force awakens, but it was still sad. I was sad. Right. But, you know, he was asking George Lucas to kill him in empire strikes back. <laughs> so you had, you knew he was not going to ride out this trilogy. Like he, he was done. Well, you want to go, you want to go down a blaze of glory. Why can some people understand Chewbacca and some don't? And there's no rhyme or rhythm to who can understand him. Yeah. No, there was a guy. Were you people taking Wookiee classes like in the back of the Falcon while they're in light speed? Oh, God, I didn't know that's what you meant. You yeah, I know. There was a guy in high school. Exactly. Only, only one so person strange. could understand. Yeah. So strange. But, um, yeah, so I think that idea of holding on loosely, isn't that, you know, we're, we're doing this during Lent. And I think... You know, Lent is frequently, I think, misunderstood and, you know, probably was misused in previous times. But it, it is about holding on loosely. You know, the idea of even Lent begins with the imposition of ashes and being reminded that from dust you came, from dust you will return, is a somber thing, but it can be a liberating thing. Saying, you know, there's, right, you have the freedom to live your life holding on loosely. But remembering that um, whatever, you know, for instance, the tradition of giving something up is to demonstrate that, you know, I can give this up. I mean, that's part of the whole three temptations of Jesus. You know, you don't have to use your power only to turn stones into bread. You don't have to throw yourself off a pinnacle of the temple or the pinnacle of the neighborhood or the pinnacle of your career or the academy. And You know, it doesn't really matter how published you are. You know, it's interesting, on the day of you die, you're not going to be counting how many times uh, you were published. And and so I think a lot of, in the academy, and I think it's true in churches and professions, you know, we're constantly being called to throw ourselves off the pinnacle of the temple so everybody can see who we really are. 
But Jesus says no to that. And I think we have the freedom to say no to it as well. Yeah, he says no in the desert to everything Adam and Eve said yes to in the garden. Right. And ultimately, the, the misuse of power. I mean, you know, you and I have been joking that suddenly everybody realizes that Donald Trump might get elected. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I don't know what when we did that podcast, and I'll give you the, you the credit. I was dismissive, and you thought this thing could really happen. That was back... When we, that was one of our first podcasts. Yeah, it was early on. We, yeah. we had this. We had the scoop. It's uh, it's we were huge. But I think you know, uh, <laughs> I think the misuse of the the, uh, the misuse of power in the public sphere, in politics, and in the rhetoric of politics, and I would include this within the media. Uh, we're bearing the fruits of, 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 of the of holding on to certain things. Very, very hardly, and using them for, for um, the misuse of power. And I think, I think this current electric election cycle is unnerving and potentially frightening, but it's also something that we have, we have, we have built. So, from the election cycle, we've talked Star Wars. Now, I want to talk Star Trek because I still cry at the end of Wrath of Khan, and I've seen it so many times. If you turn the volume down, I can say eighty-five percent of the lines. But when Spock, it's not a spoiler because it's like 1983. Right. They also showed, the, it showed it at the Academy Awards. Yeah, so. right. It's a, when, when, when Spock gives his life to save the ship, and there's that scene at the end where he and Kirk are, ta- are talking through the radiation screen glass, and he says, you know, why? And Spock goes, because the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. It's logical. And they were crying. And then what's interesting though is that they all their lives are all saved. And then the whole next film, because there's this interesting storyline where Spock puts his his consciousness in McCoy. And after he finds out, McCoy says, That green-blooded bastard. It's that revenge for all those arguments he lost. <laughs> but it's funny, they all give up their careers. They all give up, they all had this great careers in Star They were legends, and they all gave up and they gave them up. And then when Spock is resurrected at the end, he's he does he's not fully himself, but he he says this is illogical. Why would you do this? And Kirk says, because the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. Mm, yeah, kind of like the you know that's that's kind of maybe part of the hope and loss because um, because of regardless of what we lose in this life, we we actually believe that um, that when we're lost. The good shepherd finds us. You know, I think that's, I think for people of faith, and maybe my experience over the years, um, a lot of people have had faith renewed in the context of loss, which to me is paradoxical. You know, I, I, um, I've watched a lot of people die, and I, I often walk away believing more and doubting more at the same time. Um, and I've watched a lot of people die way too soon. Um, but this idea of, of of being found in our lostness, not being alone, um, which is at the heart of of you know I mean, you know when when the disciples are are you know not really even fully grasping what they're about to lose in Jesus you know he still says I'll be with you always uh, but in this world you'll have trouble I think sometimes we we for, we don't we don't want to remember uh, that we are going to have trouble in this world. But when you lose something that's important to you, you, you can't avoid it. Yeah, and I think it reminds us, at least as Christians, 
that the only real redemption ever comes from death and resurrection. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's always in the valley of the shadow that you know, can these dry bones yet live? You know, both of us have, have experienced loss. You know, everybody has been in, in, in our unique experiences that we've kind of walked with each other in some of those losses. So, I mean, we hardly ever do this, but what we should give some practice. What are some practical ways to deal with the losses in our lives? What are some things, what have you done that you have found helpful? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think I, when, I've sh- when, I, when I've allowed the loss to be shared, like again, when, yeah. when I've opened myself up to, that's hard though, because I think, again, what I think is challenging about that to do it authentically and really in a, in a vulnerable way, not just like on a superficial way, is that as we were saying before, what happens with significant loss is you realize how little control you have. Right. And then subsequent to realizing that, you've got to relinquish further control right. to share it with others, which is just a hard thing for most of us to do, even on our best mo- in our best moments. Yeah, my, I have a, a number of people I've been very close to. It's funny, when they were going through their divorce, they disappeared for a while. And I think sometimes that's, you know, there's a sense where you're right, you feel like you have to withdraw. But I remember talking to my one friend saying, you know, I, I said to him, I said, you know, uh, well, he said, you know, I just needed to, you know, I needed to talk. I said, but you didn't return my phone calls. And I think he said, yeah, you're right. And that's the paradox. I mean, I think you're right. So, I mean, in some levels, that's maybe one thing to, to realize. You have kind of the, the push me, pull me thing that one, you do need people. You need You need to be able to be, vulnerable and you you need to know you're not alone but also being recognizing that uh you may actually prevent that from happening because of the fear of 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 being more vulnerable i think that's a great point so under you know at least if you can understand if you are involved in keeping people from you and you need them that that's that's a risk yeah and i think also i don't know how practical this is but lewis smead's great christian psychologist to teach at fuller uh, in their school psychology, said that he was married seven times to the same woman. <laughs> and that, you know, they had a pretty good marriage, but it changed from the honeymoon right. period to the, you know, sort of single years to the, you know, or childless years to, to kids, to empty nests, to, and, you know, part of the health he would say over the marriage was letting go of what was right. to receive what is. And I think right. realizing that, like, we, even with the same, partner at the same job there'll be things that will always will be losing but right sometimes in the midst of losing we receive you know especially if we're open to the reception which again is hard because even receiving makes you feel less in control because you have to receive something you can't just take it like you have to receive it yeah you know that's interesting you would say that for instance because over the years i've seen a lot of marriages you know where they where they start breaking down is not while the kids are young, um, real young, because you don't really have time to think. And I think there's even a TV show out right now. I don't remember what it's called, but I heard them interviewed. It's on HBO. I can't remember what it's called, but it deals with a couple that's kind of been together around seven years, and so the children are no longer infants where they're taking every minute of your life. And 
what you have in this situation is the couple doesn't know who they are anymore. They, they have to reintroduce themselves. And I think, you know, sometimes, you know, we, you know, during the most intense times of our life, you know, we don't, we don't reflect on what's going on around us. And sometimes we suddenly feel this loss when things slow down or there's a transition, but it's also an opportunity to, to reinvent, to refall in love, to get to know this person, to know the person who's, you know, the, the two of you who have become different people. I think, I think that's true not only in marriages, but I think it's true in any kind of friendship or relationship. So a story about, like, of lost, something very particular that was lost to me. Um, it, I received this really precious gift from some church folks, a copy of Frank Lake's Clinical Theology, an old edition, the single volume edition, a book that you know I had read a library copy of. And it meant so much to me. And I took it to the first Mockingbird conference I went to in New York because I wanted Paul Zoll to sign it, our friend, uh, the great Paul Zoll, a PZ's podcast, free plug for PZ. <laughs> and I wanted him to sign it because he was the only living person I knew oh. that was connected to the story of Frank Blake. Right. And he wrote a beautiful inscription that, you know, forever we are connected. He, you know, he's, you're connected to him through me and I, you. And yeah. it was, and I lost it. Oh. And it's a big book. I mean, it's like, I don't know how you listen. And I was pretty sure I left it at my friend Howard Baker of Blessed Memory of his house. In fact, I'd reconstructed where I'd put it because I wanted to show it to him. But actually, I also wanted to show it to someone who taught at a local college here, a, a local um, religious college, and that's where I left it. But mm. I didn't know. A year later, I got a text message with a photo. Is this yours? Wow. From somebody. And I, I got it back. And oh. I'll tell you, the book, <laughs> uh, in receiving it back, it looked better. It read better. It smelled better. Wow. So there's what does Jesus say about the shepherd that actually no one would ever be because you would get kicked out of shepherd's right. <laughs> this is, you know, the, the, the real shepherd, um, the real shepherd, the good shepherd, he leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one that wanders away, right? Yeah. And a lost sheep is a dead sheep, but you know, so this idea that there's more rejoicing in heaven for the one lost. That's found than a ninety nine never lost at all. Yeah, that's 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 a great story. That, yeah, when that book was in my hands, in some small way, I felt real joy. Yeah, you know, uh, the most influential person in my life was my maternal grandmother, and um, you know, I just you know, she was um, not only the icon of unconditional love, but she was you know, I mean, my parents loved me and and everything, but she was you know, she was the source of unconditional love in my life. And I, you know, I knew how important she was to me when I was younger. I, I, it's been in later life. I've really learned exactly how important she was, but, uh, it would have been, I guess in my early twenties, mid twenties, um, she started having some kind of dementia and, um, and it, it, it and she, she went downhill quickly. Um, matter of fact, uh, Probably the last time she recognized me, you know, was maybe three or four years into the dementia. And um, and she actually, I, I had my one son with me, and he looked uh, kind of like I did at the age, you know, he was four. And she, she immediately embraced him and gave him all the attention. So, I, you know, there was probably some connection there. Um, 
And in her latter years, she just was pretty vegetative, uh, you know, whatever, you know, that's, she was just, um, she, you know, didn't, didn't seem to know anybody at all. And she was, she was, you know, 10 years in, in care. Um, and I did her funeral. Matter of fact, her funeral was on Good Friday. And, um, and again, you know, if any of you who are clergy out there, you know, you end up doing these family funerals, which is so hard because you don't really get to grieve. But I wanted to do this one because I, I wanted to be able to say, I wanted to give her a tribute. Uh, but it was still hard. Um, I never really grieved for her. But one of the things I did find, uh, initially I didn't grieve for her, but one of the things I, I found was she started coming back to me the way she was after she had passed. I mean, because she was no longer the shell of herself in a hospital bed, but I was able to begin to recapture um, recapture who who she was, and then frankly, and at some time of some great loss in my life, uh, it was I was able to to really understand the depth of what this woman had meant to me, uh, how Christ had shown through her, and my grandmother is alive to me in profound ways that that. Um, that she wasn't even in those wonderful days of childhood. And so, you know, I don't want to romanticize loss, but um, I don't think love dies. Um, I don't think love dies. Uh, And I think that when we lose someone or something that we loved, there's an opportunity for that to be used, to be redeemed, to be transformed, um, to move us towards the day when we will no longer lose. Yeah, and so for those out there who are experiencing loss, uh, as awful as it is and gut-wrenching at times, uh, yeah, I mean, new meaning can be found and new life can be found. So can you. Amen.
Thank you.